It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Hi, I'm Richard Davies, and I've been on the radio for years at ABC News. And I'm Jim Meggs, and I've been editor of a bunch of different magazines, including Popular Mechanics. We've come together for our very first show, Jim, so let's launch right in to a subject that's a vital concern for most parents. How do we stop technology from overwhelming our kids? Video games, apps for kids, ebooks, spending too much alone time on the computer. All of these are real worries for many parents. But for kids, is tech a problem or an opportunity? Okay, so joining us for our very first How Do We Fix It, we invited developmental psychologist Abigail Baird of Vassar College. And I started the whole thing off by asking Abigail a penetrating question. Can I call you Abby? Absolutely. Your Abby would also be appropriate for your first show. <laughs> Abby, I looked up your college bio and it says your interests include a special focus on neural development during adolescence, the teenage brain, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, but the bio doesn't tell us that you have two six-year-old twins, which is one of the reasons why we invited you here, because <laughs> you have some practical experience. Yeah. So let's tackle this from the beginning. Is technology changing our kids' brains? Yes. Of course it is. Everything changes our kids' brains. Um, waking up in the morning changes our kids' brains. Your brain, my brain, and anyone who's listening, their brain is changing right now. As you're listening to this, your brain is changing. Um, our brain's a dynamic organ that's always looking to learn. I don't think the question is, is the brain changing? I think the question is, how is the brain changing? And I want to take the conversation up a few years and go from toddlers to, um, to video games. And you know, we've, we've seen so much concern about video games, violent video games. Uh, and I was wondering what your take is. Is this a problem? Are kids spending too much time you know, playing these, say, first-person shooter games? If you do look at the empirical literature, it's not very clear. Um, the one, one finding that we do see consistently is that violent video games, independent of your age, briefly do desensitize you to some kinds of violence, briefly. And by briefly, I mean 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That doesn't really have a real-world impact, but people have kind of taken that and run with it. What is also rarely reported in those, in those same reports, especially with the first-person games, is that a lot of times there are enduring uh, effects, but those enduring effects are things like improvements in reaction time, improvements in divided attention, um, improvements in eye-hand coordination to some extent. 
So they're actually um, things that help kids in some ways when they play these games. But, but there appears to be no long-term or medium-term effect on the kid's value system. Not in the current literature. Now, it could be that we're not asking the right questions. It could be that we haven't found the right group of kids. I think it's important to keep in mind that if you have a child who is struggling um, with other issues, who is disturbed, who is prone to violence, they will be drawn to violent media, they will be drawn to violent video games. So you hear lots of reports of you know, the kid who did commit a violent act, and in the history you always hear, well, he played violent video games. Of course he did, because he was a violent person who was drawn to violent video games. What you don't often hear is that every year, the statistics on violence among adolescents, violence is dropping. It's steadily dropping. So, so violent video games are good for, for kids. <laughs> I did, as a psychologist, I did not say that, but I also will not refute that. We just don't know enough. I can't refute it. We don't know enough. One of the, one of the funny upsides I came across is um, through my wife teaching history, a game like Call of Duty, they have scenes that are set in you know, D-Day, the Bay of Pigs, the Cold War, all these interesting scenarios. Some of them are pretty accurate. Some of them are pretty fanciful. But, I, but any kid who's played through some of those scenarios certainly is going to pay a lot more attention in that middle school or high school history class when they get to some of those issues because he or she might feel like, I've actually lived this. I've been there. Well, absolutely. So the point of adolescence, one of the reasons we have adolescence is to prepare us for adulthood. And so in becoming an adult, the way that the adolescent brain grows is it's particularly sensitive to anything that's personally relevant, anything that feels intensely emotionally, anything that you think is going to help get you through the day. So things like video games and succeeding video games often become social currency. So once it's social currency between two adolescents, now you have a foothold as a teacher. If so if you know Call of Duty's hot right now and you know they're talking about D-Day, you can actually, that's an in as a teacher. So Again, that's hard to demonize that. Bearing in mind that we are changed by technology, is there too young an age to consciously expose your kids to technology? Personally, I feel the answer to that is, is, is probably not. But I think the way in which they're exposed does matter. So I think the younger you are, the more important it may be to have an adult alongside you interacting with you and the technology because very young children are certainly capable of learning from technology, but we do know they learn best from other humans. And that human-to-human interface, especially with toddlers and with, with, with pre-adolescent kids, is, is very critical for, for brain development. What do you think about the recommendation, which is a sort of flat-out recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which says, you know, kids under two, you shouldn't put them in front of a computer. Um, honestly, I disagree. Now, I'm not a pediatrician, so it's important to say that. I do disagree. I cannot imagine that it would be good for anyone's eyes to sit in front of a screen for 10 to 12 hours at a time, especially very young, developing eyes. So I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's a babysitter or that it should be a, a mainstay of a child's educational diet, but I do get nervous about putting any firm limits on things before we really do have a, a, a good, thorough understanding of what's happening. And what kind of science do we have on this? Very little. Very, very little. There's a classic study that was done by Patricia Cool on language acquisition, where she looked at children's sensitivity to acquiring language, and in one scenario, she had them interacting with a fluent Chinese speaker, and in another scenario, she had them interacting with a video of the same person saying the same things. And the children who interacted with the person, with the individual, showed a huge difference in their ability to retain some of those sounds that were very foreign to them. And that's replicated itself in a number of studies in a number of ways. So 
it's not that watching the video would have been bad for them. It's that watching the video in the absence of human interaction alongside of it could have been bad for them. What does this say about e-readers for real little kids? Is it better for the parent to read from a book? So again, there's, there's a modicum of evidence that it is better to read for a book, from a book because of the number of senses in the brain that are being engaged. So when you read from a book, books have a tactile, you literally have to touch and move the page. You have to get your fingers in the same way that you would with an e-reader. You have to get your finger to the right location. But with a book, you have to literally pull the page over to the right spot. And then your eyes have to track and find uh, the right spot. A lot of e-readers will highlight where you're supposed to go, which for some kids is good. But a lot of kids visually figuring out where the words are when they're very small is important. Books also, believe it or not, smell. They have, they have a, a full sensory experience to them. So I think an e-reader, I think once in a while they can be great. But the idea that they would replace books, I think, would be a very bad idea. And it's not just things like reading or human interaction. Don't kids need to spend time, you know, picking up uh, blades of grass and learning that, that kind of tactile, physical, three-dimensional experience of the world? Absolutely. Um, my my six-year-old son the other day built a very interesting primitive bow and arrow with um, a vine, a stick, and he was using pine cones um, for the arrows, which were actually kind of great because pine cones, you know, have natural hooks on them, so he could hook them anywhere. Now, the vine had no elasticity, so mechanically this was a complete flop. But watching him engage in this, all I kept thinking was like, all right, keep going, keep going, <laughs> like you'll get the fundamentals of it. So I don't, think there's, I don't think there's an app that could actually do that for him. But watching him do that, if he wanted to engage in an app later in the afternoon, my mind would... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just in case you just parachuted in on this conversation. You're wondering, what are these people talking about? The show is called How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. Jim Meggs. And we're with Abby Baird from Vassar College, and we're talking about whether or how do we stop technology from overwhelming our kids. We've been talking about the teenage brain, about what's appropriate for a very young child. What about this problem of the parent? Are there parents who are such technophobes or so fearful about this stuff that they're getting in the way of what should be a healthy relationship between a child and a computer or a video game. Well, of course there are. I mean, and there are also parents who are feeding their children such a screen-based diet that they're doing their child a disservice. We can always find parents on the margins, and sadly, those are some of the stories we hear the most about. I think most parents 
um, are not technophobes, and most parents are very competent with technology, and I, I have a lot of colleagues and a lot of friends um, who have found really interesting ways to balance their own concerns, not, not fears, but concerns, with their children's increasing interest and demand and the, for technology, and they have an openness to technology. I have a, I, my, one of my closest friends who's a software engineer, um, so it would be kind of hypocritical to not let her kids engage in a lot of technical stuff. They have a, a board, her two girls, they get um, screen time, they get minutes, screen time minutes, electronic minutes, for any non-electronic activity. So chores, being outside, they time all their stuff, and those rack up as electronic minutes. And so it's this checks and balance system that they have to maintain. So if they want to play an hour of a video game, they both, and I've watched them both like go literally walk around in the backyard for 45 minutes so they can go in and play, but they go walk around for 45 minutes. So that's one family's way of coping with it. And I right. think every family will find, you know, it's important to find that balance. So you break the leaves for 15 minutes, they can go and play a game for half an hour. Sure. Well, you know, one thing that kicked off a lot of the interest in this, this issue um, in recent months was that piece in the New York Times where it came out that Steve Jobs, it turned out, had very little technology in his house and really discouraged his kids. And a lot of leaders in the tech industry turn out to be somewhat on the conservative side. So they're not technophobes. Um, it's their business, but... But they remain sort of uh, old school in terms of their sense of what's what's best for kids. And well, one of the things when I, I heard that one of the things I actually really really wanted to know was maybe he may have been doing something very smart, which was um, waiting to make it more of a curiosity so that it's not a um, something they're completely accustomed to. Because one of the things that really enhances learning at any age is the idea of discovery. And so if you've always grown up with a super programmed, high-tech world, these things aren't terribly exciting to you. Whereas if you hit adolescence when your brain really starts to learn about the world and think in abstract ways and think in very, very novel um, ways, if that's the first time you're exposed to a lot of this stuff, it's going to be extra exciting. And so he may have been actually giving his kids a turbo boost by not holding off forever, but by creating something that's really like, hey, look at this at the right time. Well, let's talk about that. Let's get into let's get pragmatic here. What is the right time? I mean, when when do you uh, let the kid play more or less unsupervised with an iPad for extended periods of time? Say, what's a good age? And I know you, it depends on the kid, but as a general rule, what would you think? Well, so I was thinking about this and I was, I I honestly think the answer is is the answer we've always had, which is it depends on the kid, it depends on the age. But think about think about things that have existed forever like Roller skates, skateboards, you know, scooters, bicycles. Okay, so you have a two-year-old. You don't get them a 10-speed bike. Nobody would do that. Or a motorcycle. People, that's ridiculous. If you get them roller skates, you get them the kind that have the big chunky wheels that don't go very fast. So I think it's not what's the right age. I think it's what's the right match. You know, so instead of trying, I think people would love a firm answer. Here's the right product for this. But well, well, talk about your personal example. You have two twin six-year-old boys and they're very different. Very, very different, yes. And one of them, um, honestly, he really, he does remind me of a sort of a 1940s um, TV movie person. He has no interest or, or any ability with technology. He's known for shaking remote controls or looking at iPods like they're just something newfangled and what does very he say? upsetting. He usually says, he'll, he'll say to, to his sibling, um... I want I want to watch Monsters Inc. And then someone else pushes a few buttons and hands it back to him. And then when the clip ends, he puts it down and walks away. Now, this is the same kid who was trying to make a bow and arrow with a pine cone. So, you know, we may have other challenges down the road. My other child um, 
can use an iPod to actually hijack the television. Um, uh, he actually tweeted a picture of the kitchen floor from my Twitter account um, last week, which drew a lot of very interesting responses, um, including questioning my own sanity. Um, and he also will uh, find clips, like if there's something on television, he'll pull up something on YouTube that's identical and he can't spell yet. So I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening there. But I know that um, there are lots of constructive ways in which it's being used. It's not being, and it's always used in the living room with the rest of us. Like there's no going off in a corner for hours. So I don't really have a problem with it. And it's fascinating to see two people who are just very differently oriented towards the stuff. The show is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And we're talking about how do we fix this problem? Or maybe it isn't a problem. How do we stop technology from overwhelming our kids? Well, well I think one thing, and you sort of alluded to it, is, is uh, in the family. I think one really good ground rule is keeping it public. Uh, um, my friend Chris Anderson, who used to be the editor of Wired Magazine's big tech guru, one of his, he's got five kids. One of his rules is no screens in the bedroom, all the way up to the middle teenage years. And I think that's a really interesting way. So you're not constantly negotiating with your kid like, wait, you already had, you didn't, you only walked around outside for 41 minutes and now you don't have this much time. You're not constantly fighting or negotiating. It's just like, that's just a solid rule. You're not taking your phone to bed. You're not playing video games in your bedroom at two o'clock in the morning uh, or anything else. Let's look at a couple of products for younger children that may be good and move them on just simply from a passive relation to an active relation with technology. Anything that you have in mind for little ones first? Well, so it depends on what you're looking for. Like, you know, I'm sure there are people who, who would disagree, but I think the, the Leap Pad series is one of the early um, bits of technology for kids. Had a lot of very age-appropriate stuff and a lot of different products. And I think the idea of having um, different tools to choose from that can match up with your own child is really important. So, um, you know, for my kid who really doesn't like screens so much, I would be more inclined to try to find him. He loves... Um, at six, he's already into the tiny Legos. And so my other child has no interest, not as much interest in that as screen time. So some of the Leap Pad stuff for the six, seven-year-old is great. It helps with spelling. There are a couple of great apps that, um, that do really help with um, different academic skills. I mean, there's so many. It's a real challenge is just finding them. There's, a, there's right. one great app called Hungry Fish where your, your little, the little fish may have like an eight on it, and then there's all these numbers floating around, and the fish has to eat a six and a two to add up to eight. So it's great for really young preschool kids. There's some great, there's one called Endless Alphabet that's really a lot of fun. Uh, letter School helps kids learn how to shape letters. And they're, they're enjoyable. I don't think straightforward learning skills isn't the only good reason for kids to be experimenting, but those are some fun things that kids really enjoy. Well, then as kids get older, it gets kind of interesting. So watching, I mean, I'm particularly interested in adolescents. So watching pre-adolescents and adolescents design their Facebook pages, and actually right now Instagram is very, is very popular, and the way they kind of think about packaging themselves and presenting themselves to the world. And it gives them an opportunity to put out an image that they can change in a week. And in real life, sometimes that's hard to do. And, and, and clothes are expensive. Clothes are expensive, and people have a hard time forgetting that, whereas you can, you know, yes, when you put it on the Internet, it does last forever, but teenagers have a pretty short memory for those things. If you change your Instagram profile, that's what's in your friends' minds is the new you. So there's a way in which being able to do that from the safety of your own home um, is an interesting way that you can try things out, see what kind of feedback you get, and adjust yourself. I don't know if there are as many specific products for teens as it's important to watch what they do with what's out there. One of the things a lot of people are worried about is the way that 
it, it appears sometimes that social media can amplify what is already sort of that mean girls syndrome of yep. adolescents, you know, especially seventh, eighth, ninth grade girls who can really, you know, form cliques and be very cruel to the outsiders. And it seems that social media gives them even more tools to do that. How do you protect true. kids from that? I don't know that you can right now. Um, and I think it's one of the things, it's interesting because I'm asked a lot about bullying. And I don't think bullying has changed one bit from when we were children. And people will talk about how it's much more prevalent now, and it's not. But the thing that is significantly different is in the 70s or 80s, when you went home and closed your, your door, you did literally close your door. The bullies weren't going to stop by. Like, yeah, your house might get egged, but that's rare, and you, know, um, you don't know for sure who did it. If you get online to talk to your friends, you open the door to everybody. And, and I don't see that going away. So in that way, bullying has changed. There is a new facet to it. Sadly, there is enough confirmation that social media can have a very negative impact on teens. What people underestimate are things like the Trevor Project, where social media has had a hugely positive impact, where celebrities have made videos that are first-person videos talking to teens. So in the same way that you might internalize a message from a bully, um, having uh, you know someone who is very well-known seeming like they're speaking to you, you also do internalize. So I think, again, it's it's not a yes or no, it's a how do we adapt. So I mean, the idea of how do we fix this is a perfect question because we do need a fix. We do need to figure out how to, how to equip our teens with the skills to deal with this because most of us as young people didn't deal with social media bullying. Almost all of our children will at some point. So what do we need to equip them with? I want to ask you about another problem. And it's a problem not necessarily directly related to technology, but it is that many kids middle school kids, even elementary school kids, certainly teenagers, have a lot less unstructured time now than they did when their parents were young. Uh, there's a lot less of the, hey, let's just go out in a field and kick a ball around or invent some rules to a new game. It seems that there's a great deal more structured and supervised time. Does technology help kids get away from their parents, get away from that structure? Or is that also a problem with technology, that there's, there's another structured system that they're dealing with? It's a great question. I'm, and and you know, I, don't, I don't mean to sound too much like a scientist, but it is an empirical question that we don't have data on yet. I'd love to have the data on that. Um, it's funny, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was actually a fearful response of hearing my own father's voice, who is a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Um, and unstructured time in our house was an opportunity for you to do chores. So we were always very, very careful <laughs> of, of, of appearing very busy at all times. And so I think having some motivation to, even if you're not actually busy, to appear busy as a child, children don't come busy. They come, you know, they, they need to, we need to learn how to be bored and we need to learn that we either like or don't like being bored. Sitting still um, is very important. There's a, a study came out in science a couple months ago that was really eye-opening to me. It was done on college students, and they asked them to sit in a room for 10 or 15 minutes by themselves with no technology. Uh, they told them how long it was going to be. All of them experienced mood drops. Now, they did a second version of the study where there was a button in the room where they were allowed to shock themselves if they <laughs> wanted to. Whoa. And an, a large percentage of them shocked themselves within the 15 minutes. I mean, the shock was better than the boredom. Yep. Shocking yourself, they prefer to shock themselves than sit by themselves. So well, I think we do need to work on that um, because having, I mean, most adults, if you ask most people in their 40s and 50s, having 15 minutes alone in a room is kind of like a spa. But for young people, having 15 minutes in a room can be kind of daunting. So I'll give you something to do. You're bored? Oh, I can give you something to do. And then find something they don't like to do. 
so that will motivate them to learn their own things. So the flip side of that for me is, I, you know, I've always seen uh, and worried about, you'll see somebody pushing a kid around in a stroller, and the minute it gets a little fussy, someone hands, hands him or her a bottle of juice or a bag of Cheerios. So the lesson is anytime you're feeling the slightest bit out of sorts, a nice sucrose drip, you know, down your throat is all you need. And then now, I, you know, then you see the same thing. Hand, you know, the iPads back to the kids on the trip or have the DVD playing uh, frozen on a continuous loop all the way to grandma's house. Yep. And I feel that we're often too quick to try to alleviate kids' boredom. And I'm Absolutely. wondering if, that's, if we're doing some harm there. I think we might be. Um, I don't think you should never let them see something in the car. Like, I remember when we first got a cassette player in the car and could, like, hear whatever music we wanted instead of just what was on the radio. That was a huge deal. But we weren't allowed to do it all the time. So I don't think watching Frozen in the car on a six-hour trip, letting the kids watch a two-hour movie once, is not a bad idea. That cassette story, as a radio person, I find that a personal threat. <laughs> I don't, well, I, it was only after several hours, long, like an eight-hour trip to me, and we got half-hour Billy Joel, and then it was back to talk radio, strictly, <laughs> only. And I, I do think that, you know, we talked about how technology is influencing our brains. Something that I think you don't have to have grown up with it to feel is the constant flow of distractions you get an alert that somebody retweeted one of your tweets, that you've got a, a text message, you've got an email. I find even, uh, even for me, the, the ability to stay focused on one task while all that other stuff is going on is something I've seen change in my own expectations. Or if I get stuck writing something, well, I'll go check my Twitter feed. Right, Absolutely. exactly. Um, I actually, I see it in the classroom as a college professor. I'm not always popular for this. I don't allow computers in my classrooms. Wow. Um, and how do the students respond to that? Um, they're okay with it, but I think it's because I teach small classes and they know that um, I can identify them. The reason that I, honestly, the reason I, I, I do this is um, uh, five or six years ago, I taught at a much larger um, college. And I had a couple kids that sat in the front row with their computers open. And at this college, having, everyone having their laptop open was the culture. Well, a couple kids in the front row wore glasses which is really dumb if you're on it watching a computer screen because I can see everything you're looking at. Now, half of the stuff I'm really sorry I ever saw because a couple of them were boys and I really didn't need to see what they were looking at during my class. But there was a lot of email, a lot of Facebook, and some note-taking. Every conference I go to when I open my laptop, I take notes and I check my email and I watch my Twitter feed. I don't expect my students to be better than me at, at managing their attention. I've had more years on the planet to learn it and I didn't grow up with this stuff. Do you feel that for some parents, the problem is not how to say no to technology, but how to say yes? Oh, that's so well put. Yeah, I think I, I, I could not agree with you more. I think that's a really, really uh, important way to think about it because I think there's so many parents that absolutely want to say yes. They just want to do it in a, a principled or in a responsible way. And so I, it's one of the dangers. It's one of the things I think is great about you kicking off the program with this kind of a question because I think there's so many parents that are very open to saying, okay, this is going to be part of our world. Let me give my kids the best version of it. Let me give them the best skills possible. I haven't met a parent that wakes up in the morning and thinks, hmm, how can I screw up my kid today? I, I'm sure they exist. I haven't met them. Most parents wake up and think, what can I do that will really help my kid? So I do think that's exactly the question. How do we figure out what's best for each kid? Any thoughts on that? Jim said a few moments ago, we, we need to make this show practical. We need to come up with clear, concrete suggestions. One concrete suggestion I have, and it's funny because I would say it applies just about every area of parenting. Parents who know their children know best. One of the things that um, science and, and a lot of uh, the information age has done has made parents feel like they don't know what's best. 
And I think one of the best things we can do for parents is say, nope, you do know. If you have a kid who plays with their iPad a lot and gets good grades and has lots of friends and isn't exhibiting any strange or, or harmful behaviors, let them play with their iPad. If you have a kid that you know is on there too much and seems to have trouble with human interactions, maybe scale it back. Trust your instincts. And you know, one of the things that we also could, could do a little better with is having conversations about this as parents and saying, hey, how do you handle it in your house? You know, I watch, I, I, my children are a little younger than a lot of my friends' children, so I get to watch them screw up first and then see how they re, re, refine their process and then I adapt it. But I think having those conversations as parents and being frank about it, being like, I'm not really sure what to do. What did you do? And seeing, finding kids who are like our kids, because every kid's different. So I, don't th I wish I could tell you, here's the formula. But I think the formula is something that each parent has in their head. We just have to remind them that they have it. We think of kids using technology completely as that's an isolated time. You mentioned with a toddler, you might want to sit there together with the iPad. But this, I think, can also work with older kids. Instead of just having the kids, you know, sitting on their phones in the backseat of the car as you drive past, you know, Devil's Tower or the Redwoods and they're not even looking up. Um, on a family trip, for example, you could bring the kids into a project. One kid maybe runs the Instagram account of pictures of the trip. Brilliant. Another kid maybe is the chief navigator and try, tries to figure out where the where you are and where you should stop. And, um, and so instead of saying, no, 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 you can't pull out your phones or you can't have the iPad, it's like now's a good time to, to have some fun with technology, but do it as a part of a family project. Absolutely, or even um, doing, so on a family trip, if they have pods or pads, having a scavenger hunt. You know, so we used to play punch buggy or counting certain colored cars or whatever. You know, so um, you see a 57 Chevy go by, which would be an unusual thing. So you say, okay, guys, find out how many cylinders a 57 Chevy had. You know, so finding exactly what you're saying, ways to interact. So your kid's really into Minecraft. Um, and I love the idea of having the technology in the family space. Um, go over, pull up a chair and be like, this is cool, show me how to do this. Now, a lot of teenagers might say, uh, I'm playing with my friends right now. And you can say, well, you cannot play or you can show me how to play. And then you can have some more time with your friends. You know, and I think a lot of parents um, are nervous about stepping into that space of saying, no, I will unplug it and you'll be out for a couple hours versus let, just let me in a little bit. You know, I don't want to be friends with your friends. I don't want to take over your social world, but I really want to see what you're doing with this. It's interesting to me. Abby Baird of Vassar College, thanks a lot Thank for, you so for being much. with us. I, I think we've kind of, if not conquered the problem, certainly given people more of an on-ramp. Well, hopefully have a few, give people a few tools. And I think the main lesson I'm hearing from you, Abby, is, is trust your judgment. Don't assume the technology is so daunting or alien that you're not, you don't have the authority to make a call. And also, but also don't assume that it's entirely a negative thing and, and maybe look for ways to make it an, an empowering experience for your kid. And I think you're also saying that, that every child is different and therefore the answer to, to one question could be answered a million different ways. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I, I really, I really appreciate you inviting me on and I, I now know what I'll be listening to on the radio. No, no cassette tapes, only the show. Excellent plug, Abby. That's our podcast, How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we'd like you to suggest ideas for future episodes. Send us an email to daviescontent at gmail.com or daviesnow at Twitter. And Davies is spelled D-A-V-I-E-S. Yeah, it's this Welsh thing. D-A-V-I-E-S, right. And I'm on Twitter at James B. Meggs. And that's not so easy either. Meggs is M. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. E-I-G-S. Thanks for listening.